Hello, everyone. My name is Julia Ferrioli, and I'm in Seattle recording this story for Open Source Stories with Dwayne O'Brien today for Maintainer Month. Hi, Dwayne. Do you want to introduce Hi. yourself? Yeah. Hi, Julia. I'm Dwayne O'Brien. I am in Alameda, California, where it is uh, clear that Spring has sprung. It is sunny and warm and beautiful outside. Uh, and it is uh, a good lead in uh, to Maintainer Month and to think about the beauty that maintainers bring into our lives in, in, in various ways. Ah, that's that's lovely. That's wonderful. Um, well, I'm sure we'll dig into that in, in just a minute. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a question about, you know, it's it's spring has has arrived finally, we're getting to go outside more. What are you excited to to do this summer, the spring, summer? Yeah, I, you know, it, it's funny because the, the thing that I'm excited to get more involved in actually isn't outside, which seems a shame. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm spoiled for nice weather, but um, like... Like many before me who have followed the the, the same path, uh, I've picked up a, a recent interest in woodworking and have classes coming up that I'm very excited about. Um, and you know, so far I am I am. It's something that I did in high school, and it's something I did sort of a little bit off and on. But I was always more of a uh, sort of a, a rough work kind of person, and so getting to the point that I can start paying attention to details and uh, and, and do things that are a little nicer and that fit a little better. Like that, that's exciting. Uh, it's a little, it's a little cliche. Like I said, there's lots of folks who have followed the path of software engineer to, to woodworking. And I think it's, I think it's actually very simple in, in woodworking. If you find a bug, you just squish it with your thumb and you keep moving. You don't have to try to figure out like what's going on behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dig more into that. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. And I think that's a, pretty common theme, especially with the folks we're talking to on Open Source Stories, is the desire to do something tangible um, and, and not simple because woodworking is not simple. I've seen enough joinery books <laughs> to know that. Yes. But... Um, <laughs> that is a deep, deep, deep world that I have only just sort of, I, I peeked in and, 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 and closed it. I'm I'm like excited to carve spoons on a regular basis and, and, and so on. So, okay. So the next time I need some spoons, I'll, I'll come to you. Then. Well, a very good friend of mine recently gifted me with a nice piece of white cedar that I'm hoping to turn into some spoons. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll look for, I'll look for pictures on that. Um, but maintainer month, it's May, it's maintainer month. Yes. Um, which is a celebration of an an appreciation month for all that maintainers of open source projects and open things, I guess, as well, um, give to us. So how did you become involved in, in maintainer month is. Um, you know, we started, well, I'm going to start that sentence over. We do post, right? Sure. Yeah, sure. We do now. <laughs> um, 
Uh, as some of your listeners will know, I worked at a company called Indeed for a little over five years and was part of a recent round of layoffs there. But a couple of years ago, we started a program at Indeed that was focused specifically on sponsoring individual contributors and maintainers within open source, regardless of what projects that they were working on. Um, you know, the program that we were running prior to that was very focused on projects. We were looking at projects and, and which projects were important to Indeed. And over the course of, of looking at those, we also recognized that there was this, this layer below the projects of people who were active in a wide range of projects around the ecosystem. And we had to pay attention to that end of the work as well as the project end of the work. So we started a separate program that just looked at paying attention to the people and how do we show up for the people with sponsorship dollars? Because sponsoring people and sponsoring maintainers and sponsoring contributors is very different from, from a project. Uh, uh, for example, a project needs to have a governance structure that decides how they're going to distribute money within the project once it receives those funds. A person generally is their own governance project or their own governance, right? Like, um, and, you know, it's, it's simpler from one aspect and, and much more complicated from another aspect when, when you're, when you're sponsoring people. And the more we spent, the more time we spent sort of digging in to understand the contributors to our projects and where they were active and, and more broadly, um, sort of what were they doing across the ecosystem the more I started to get this sort of nagging concern that we were having the wrong conversation about how we approach funding for, 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 for these folks. Um, and, you know, there's, there's been several phrases that have become sort of common in the funding space over the last few years and critical digital infrastructure is one of them. We see uh, that pop up everywhere, don't we? we do. And I've repeated it often from the stage that I've been involved in, in, you know, grants and funding for critical digital infrastructure. It's important for us to pay attention to our critical digital infrastructure. Um, and that's important, but I think we're having that conversation at the expense of our critical human infrastructure. And when you think about projects that release some, uh, that, when you think about projects that reach some kind of maintainer crisis, right? It isn't the project that suddenly burns out. It's a maintainer that suddenly burns out or a key contributor that suddenly burns out. Uh, projects, like some projects have to pay their bills, but not as much as the people who are maintaining them have to pay their bills and feed their families and pay their rent and pay for their health insurance if they're in the US and, and so on. Um, and I, I guess another facet of it is if you, if, you, if you take any of the well-known open source projects that your organization uses or that you might rely on heavily you know, for yourself, you probably have a sense for who the maintainer is. And if the maintainer suddenly quit the project because they were excited to work on a new thing based off of what they'd already learned, you're gonna be inclined to wanna pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. And so, 
I, I think we're likely to to follow these folks from one project to the another to another because they they have a read on the problem spaces that they've been working on. They have a read on the technology that they've been working on. They have a, a, a sense for where things want to go. Um, and those just aren't parts of the conversation we're having when we talk about critical digital infrastructure. Um, we, we, we have to solve these with, with people and dollars can help that, but it's not the whole answer. You know, I'm going, I'm going back to what you said that projects don't burn out, people burn out. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's a, there's a kind of meta conversation in there about how even the language that we use to describe, you know, critical digital infrastructure, because it is so clinical, because it is so tech focused, it it does completely ignore the humanity behind that infrastructure. It, it it does, and it's when you when you say it, like when if, when I say the following sentence, it's it's probably going to be pretty obvious what the problem is, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, Babel is burning. Uh, uh, Babel is important. Henry is burning out. Let's give money to Babel, right? Like like Henry's the person experiencing the the crunch on his time and attention and everything else. Um, and I'm sure giving money to the Babel project will, will help Henry with some of his brown, or at least we, we hope that it will. But we're, we're sort of talking about like treating a symptom on, on another side of the ecosystem for, for what we're seeing. I don't know. I just, I, mm -hmm. <sighs> um, So, I'm sorry, I'm just arranging my words here, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, one of the conversations that we that comes up from time to time is, is what role should uh, city, state, federal, uh, uh, nation-level organizations play in the funding of open source, right? Um, and, like, let us except for the purpose of argument that getting them involved is a good thing, right? More resources and, and let's, let, let's help, let's help keep our critical digital infrastructure running. Like, you know, um, an, an, an 11 or 20 or hundred million dollar bill that, that, that passes to support that doesn't fix the problem. It's mobilizing people to help address the problem. It's mobilizing people to help shore up the work that the maintainers are doing. It's, growing our own critical human infrastructure so that it is robust and capable of absorbing um, the, the kind of disruption that happens when someone gets sick for six months and, and has to take time off of the project, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I just don't, we're not talking enough about solving the people side of the problem. And I, like I say this as someone who talks all the time about the money side of the problem, right? And so to a degree, I guess I would say uh, on, on behalf of all of us, I'm sorry for leading the conversation in that direction, but we like we have to have, be having this other conversation as well. So when we are talking 
about critical digital infrastructure, it seems, it does seem weird, given that humans are having the conversation, humans are producing the software, humans are consuming the software, they're interacting with it, etc., that we don't factor ourselves in mm-hmm. to the equation. So how how do we get people to take the critical human infrastructure seriously? I have so as part of, you know, being uh, recently fun employed, I guess, um, which I don't actually like that word because a lot of people who are not working right now aren't having fun. So um, <laughs> since I was laid off and suddenly had a lot more time, I started making a, a conscious decision to sort of disconnect and, and get out there and, and talk to people in person. And you know, I think we're still figuring out how to do that safely in in light of the way things have changed since since COVID changed everything for all of us. But I, I think all the time about how we you know have these conversations with our with ourselves or with like-minded folks at, at, at summits and at conferences or in working groups, all of which I go to and do and participate and lead. Um but that's not enough. Like we have to get out and talk to each other in ways in ways that we aren't right now. Um, I'll give a really good example of, of what I mean just for myself. Uh, I ran open source funding programs at Indeed for about four years, and it was on my to-do list to make sure that I was setting up a weekly conversation with a person who maintains one of our dependencies for about four years. It was never high enough in the in the in the list of priorities that I could I could carve out time for it or I felt like I could carve out time for it. Um, and that was that was my failing, right? Like nobody set those priorities for me. I set them for myself. And it, it, like we can't talk about folks like Henry who are involved in Babel without talking to Henry, right? We can't we can't talk about Daniel who maintains curl without talking to Daniel. We can't talk about these people like they're abstract concepts that exist in this sphere of internet stuff and space along with, you know, our pictures of, of cat videos and our, and our anger about whatever is happening right now and our, and our desperate need to try to close chatbot windows and not subscribe to newsletters. Like we, we have to actually engage with these people as individuals and not talking about them like they're abstract concepts and, I feel like we've we've lost that in the conversation. Um, if you look at the much of the conversation around critical digital infrastructure, so much of it is focused on what are we using? How, how do we know which things are the most important things? Um, and there's a lot of emphasis that's put on you know tools that can help us get to those answers and scorecards that will help us you know tell how things are doing and metrics that will say how, how, how things are doing. It's a little bit like trying to figure out how a forest is doing by reading a bunch of sensor data. Like you have to 
go walk out and touch the trees a little bit. <laughs> and, and like, I don't know, the sensor data looks good, but there's no bugs here. Maybe that's a problem, right? Like, we, 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 ha we have to engage with folks a little more directly than we have been. Um, that, that, I think, is, is probably the first step. Get past the screen name. Yeah, for sure. And and I like if I'm honest, I'm not sure how to approach that without maintainers now feeling like here's another thing people want from me, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm absolutely certain that I'm not gonna figure that out on a whiteboard or you know, talking to a bunch of other folks who aren't maintainers and asking what do we think the right way is to approach folks to, to get some of their time to talk about this problem. Like I, I have to engage with these folks directly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. You asked, a, you asked a question about how do we do something and all I'm talking about is how I do something, but it has to start there, right? It has to start with the individual choices that we make about how we engage with each other. It's at its root, how, how we treat each other, right? Like how do we want to get to the point where people are comfortable setting up time with a random person, right? Because mm -hmm. that's a risk too even if it's not in an in-person conversation. So you don't know how that's going to affect your day, how what they want of you, if there are underlying motivations. And so building up that repertoire of good interactions is so important. What a, what a fascinating observation. Like it leads us straight to how do we create psychological safety for maintainers so that they are willing to take this call right. without the underlying fear that the person on the other end is going to ask them to do 40 hours of free labor. Right. It or is or them out for something that isn't working. And if you if you look at the the, the blog posts, the research, whatever um, that we get about maintainers. People have become fiercely protective of their time because they've been signed up for a ton of work that they didn't anticipate, right? And so it's a, it's a really difficult problem. It's a balancing act. And how do you prove that you are acting in good faith when we know the internet can sometimes be a toxic place? How do you how do you convince folks that you're one of the good ones and not one of the good ones who says they're one of the good ones, one of the good ones who's really one of the good ones? Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, ouch. Um, wasn't targeted or it wasn't directed at you? No, 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 no. I don't. That wasn't like a personal ouch. I don't. Feel, I'm not wounded. I'm also a, a big boy who can manage his feelings. Um, I'm just like. I, I guess I never thought about the question of psychological safety in this conversation, mm -hmm. right? Like, yes, absolutely. Some part of this is, is surely I'm busy. 
I have another job and I have a family and no, I'm just not going to take calls from people, mm -hmm. even, even folks who want to help me solve my problem. Right. Or, uh, or, or so on. Um, I, I haven't thought about the, the facet of like these conversations by default are inherently risky for me in some way. And so I need to, to hedge my risk by engaging on, on very narrow terms. That's really interesting. Um, and I don't know what to do with it yet, but I'm kind of excited to, to, to have that observation sort of thrown out on, on this one. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I, I do what I can. Shore up the digital human infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. Crit critical human infrastructure. Critical Apologies. human infrastructure. Um, I think the other thing I would say on the subject, if I can, I'm not segueing this, but I want to make sure I get this in, is that part of the conversation we have about critical digital infrastructure is how big of a problem these single maintainer projects are. And when we talk about solving, and I'm putting air quotes for people who can't see, the in quotes problem of single maintainer projects, we always talk about adding another maintainer to the project. And the conversation tends to be about like finding a clone of that person or manufacturing a clone of that person so that they can like it equally divide their responsibilities like their cells that are growing up to be the same thing. And that's not how anything else in the world works, right? If, if, if you're like in the kitchen and, and cooking for two people, you can kind of manage everything for yourself. If you're in the cook kitchen and cooking for 20 people, you don't want someone standing next to you cooking exactly the same thing you are. You're going to give them a different set of things to work on. You know, uh, I'll make the salads and you, you know, do whatever is happening on the stove or, what, or vice versa, right? Like uh, Stephen Wally did a great walkthrough of this exact narrative in one of his talks a few years ago. I believe it was at Seagull where he was talking about scaling up the, the people who are involved in a project. And you might be a, a great home cook, but the minute you add a second person, the whole skill set is different. And, you know, running a great kitchen in your home is not running a two-person taco truck. It's not running a restaurant. It's not running a chain of restaurants, right? Um, and so to bring it back around, when we think about again, in quotes, solving the problem of single maintainer projects, I think we have to stop thinking about cloning maintainers and start thinking about finding them complementary partners. And one maintainer's complementary partner might be a product manager. One might be a program manager. One might actually be a full-time developer because what they actually want to do is the project management and the community end of it. And, and they need somebody to take over coding responsibilities. And it's not going to be a one size fits all solution for the projects because people aren't one size fits all. Um, and so part of shoring up our critical human infrastructure is not adding N number of maintainers. It's finding maintainers partners who help them balance out their 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 skill sets and what they need. I love it. 
for a couple of reasons. First, can you imagine unleashing uh, another Dwayne or Julia on the world? Nobody wants that. <laughs> Come on. So definitely no cloning us. Um, yeah. But but also there's there was like a really subtle cue that you had on on fixing the problem um and that assumes or the subtext there is that people are the problem Mm -hmm. um that need to be fixed instead of the systems and the culture and practices that we embrace and embody and extend so understanding what skills are, are needed in our critical human infrastructure for a project and understanding the motivations and what people like to do and are going to be happy doing, they're very, they're very different things. So, I don't know. That got me, that got me thinking. Um, hmm. Yeah. Oh, maintainers have their work cut out for them. They do. If only they would tell us what they need. <laughs> um, take the time to meet with all of us individually. One oh, on yes. One. Yeah. Absolutely. I, um, one of the things I really, like, I wanted to propose for maintainer month and that I don't have the capacity myself or the desire to push off on other folks to run um, is the notion of the maintainer's wish list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of thing that you see in, in, in communities that have a, a strong culture of mutual aid, right? Like, like what it does is what you need a spa day. We need somebody to buy a spa day for this maintainer over here, right? Like I, I, I always need a spa day. Like is is what you need, um, like help with childcare. We're gonna help pay this maintainer's childcare bill in some way that we could catalyze, catalog, and organize the human needs of maintainers in a way that makes it easy for the community to step up and meet those needs. Um, right now you, you kind of have to know folks. And I'd also love to see us encouraging, uh, a norm where maintainers, we're back to psychological safety again, where maintainers feel comfortable expressing what their needs as a human are so that the community as people can step up to, to meet their human needs. Well, I don't know about you, but I've got a couple of domain names to register now. (laughs) I look forward to subscribing to your newsletter. (laughs) Um, If if you've got great ideas for for how to implement it, I would love to support it. I I don't right now. All I have is bad ideas for how to implement it. I mean, most of my ideas are bad, but I also... I'm going to stop you there. That's (laughs) true. 
yes, but usually people don't argue with me when we're doing this. So <laughs> it's... <laughs> um, and here I thought you did your research before I came onto the call. Me do my uh, research? No. Um, For those listening at home, Julia and I have known each other for a little while now and are on a number of, of other working groups together. So this is good natured, you know, ribbing. In, indeed. Indeed. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that I, I always think about when talking about caring for maintainers is how do we implement any sort of effort that doesn't turn into a popularity contest mm. because open source already has a little bit of a popularity contest vibe mm -hmm. going on. Um, and that's, that's generally where I get stuck. Yeah. You know, um, it is a good question. It is a valid problem. I think I'm still in search of solutions that I feel good about myself. Um, I will say that the process of selecting and setting sponsorships for people when we were doing that for a couple of years at Indeed involved some amount of tooling and then having to look at the results as a, as a human and see if they made sense to a human. Right. Mm -hmm. And to go in and, and look at, you know, some of the top recommendations, some of the bottom recommendations and see like, does this feel equitable? Are the same people who are raising money, raising all of the money under this scenario as well. And there were cases where we had to intentionally, sort of adjust the results of the model up and down to try to compensate for that. Um, and some sometimes this is easy. There was one maintainer in particular who I really appreciated making this easy. And I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. Um, and if you listen to this podcast, you might know who you are. And I barely remember the name of the project, so I'm not going to say it because I'll probably get it wrong. Um, but we did all of our sponsorship work. It was driven entirely through GitHub sponsors because it was the machine readable information that we could get to at scale. And they showed up as a pretty significant contributor to a project that we use in a lot of places. And so they, the recommendation from the model that we had derived was to, to sponsor them at a very high level. When I went and looked at their sponsorship page, it had in big letters across the top, if you're here to sponsor me for this project, stop. I get paid to work on that full time by my employer and I don't need sponsorship for that. But if you use some of these other projects that I use, that, that I've written, I would, I would love to have your sponsorship. That was so helpful to me as a sponsor because I knew immediately I can prioritize the limited funding that I have toward other folks. That is not a practice that's universal within the maintainer community. There is not really a universal practice. Interestingly, there were, there were sort of pricing levels that emerged within language ecosystems that I found really interesting. Mm. Um, almost all of the JavaScript folks who were very active in sponsors had the, like, at the top, there was a, like a $6,000 
you're a corporate sponsor, but you need me to come out for a day and work on something specific. Like it was sort of the support contract thing. Um, and a bunch of people that we saw in the Python community had done theirs at $2, $4, $8, $16, $32. Like that was the model all the way through up to $1,024, right? Um, so it was interesting to see sort of those patterns within communities, which is derailing from my point that the, the, the idea of saying on your sponsor page, this is what I want you to sponsor me for, and this is what I don't want your sponsorship for, is not universal, but it was really, really helpful in that one maintainer's case. So thank you for that. I mean, it's also extremely ethical. Yes. And I, I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. So I know that we only have a couple of minutes left. Um, this has been a fascinating dis discussion about our critical human infrastructure, which is in much need of some TLC. Mm. So I appreciate the, the focus on that, especially during ma maintainer month. Yes. Um, are there any I parting thoughts that you'd like to, to leave us with? I guess, yeah. Um, I'm going to say something that that shouldn't be controversial, and it, and it should be fairly obvious. But um, your employer is not a person. Your organization is not a person they will not care because they are incapable of, of caring. They are capable of enacting ethical policies and enacting responsible programs. And they are responsible in, you know, putting together initiative. They, they are, they, they are capable of putting together initiatives that will have positive results in the community, but the organization itself cannot care you are the one who can care and the people in your organizations are the ones who can care. And if you want your organization to care about open source and to care about critical human infrastructure, you can't do that, right? You have to get the people in those organizations to care about it so that they can affect change for those effective policies and those responsible and, and, and ethical policies and programs. Um, and we have to think about it through that lens. Like the critical human infrastructure is not just the people who are underlying the projects that we all depend on. Our critical human infrastructure is the, the layer underneath the entire open source ecosystem. So many people have said over the years, it all comes back to people. It all comes back to people. Open source is people. It all comes back to people. And it's like, and, 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 and maybe I'm just getting it now and feel like I've suddenly attained enlightenment. But for real, like the, the humans in your organizations are the ones who will care. And you are one of them. So care. Care. That is my final word. Care. Well, thank you, Dwayne. Um, it's a delight as always getting the chance to chat with you. And thank you so much for coming on Open Source Stories for this month of maintainership. 
thank you for having me. I, it's it's remarkable to me that we haven't done this sooner. Um, yes. Considering how much how how much we we do other stuff together, but I'm delighted to to be here. So uh, thank you. I'm sure we'll we'll chat again. And yes. We'll see you all next time. <laughs>